Hello, welcome to Spotlight, the tinsel of creativity against the dark of a winter's night. Spotlight, brought to you by the Isle of Man Arts Council. This evening, we hear about a wonderful new book, which is the first to provide a highly entertaining history of nursing and midwifery in the Isle of Man. We have a chat with the daughter of Wardship Down author Richard Adams, now an island resident herself, about the continuing legacy of his work. And a quick look ahead to Winterfest 2022. As always, do get in touch with any creative artistic endeavours you may be involved in, planning, hoping to create or would really like to put in the spotlight. Be they poetic, visual, theatrical, musical, literary, mime, ceramics, you name it, dance. Got to be there. Email me, spotlight at manxradio.com or howardkane at manxradio.com. Please do. It's thin on the ground again, so get emailing with some ideas. It may seem amazing, but a wonderful new book which is just out is the first ever comprehensive history of nursing and midwifery in the Isle of Man. From Bedpans to Boardroom brings together for the first time a wealth of brilliant photographs, recollections, reports and anecdotes from past and present to form a unique work of social history. It's been written by author Amanda Jane Sumner, edited by Marion Kenny, formerly of this parish, of course, with a foreword by our very own Charles Gard. Amanda and Charles dropped by the Spotlight Studios to tell me more. It was intended to be just a booklet, really. Um, 2019, we were preparing for Year of the Nurse and Midwife, which was 2020, and I was tasked with organising events for the, the year, and I thought, wouldn't it be nice if I came up with a little booklet first half of it would be about the history of nursing, second half would be about what we got up to in 2020, and I thought it'd just be a nice keepsake. Um, of course, 2020 went pear shape <laughs> because of... Did a uh, bit. Yeah, and so it, it was put on the back burner for a while, but then the more research I did, I realised actually, you know, the, the health service over here is, it's so convoluted, and it, it's like every time I thought I'd finished, I discovered another hospital, <laughs> so I had to start again, and... Um, so it just went on from there, really. And but I, it could have been bigger. It, it's it's big as it is, you know. I think it was pushing a hundred thousand words in the end. But I only touched on some subjects because I I thought, yeah, this is going to be war and peace. And did you have an idea in your mind when you started how you were going to arrange it? Were you trying to do it chronologically? Were you taking it in different themes, or how did you actually put it out when you were coming to laying the book out? I, I don't think there's any conscious decision, really. I think it just kind of. It fell that way you know it was I mean obviously the the main thing was going to be about um, nurse training and how it evolved on the island um, but that I did try to move that to the beginning of the the book at one stage but then it just didn't feel right because I felt you needed your history of your hospitals and your maternity services and um, the likes of so yeah it, it, everything just fell into place like I said there was nothing definite there. And where did you come into this Charles then? Because we were just chatting before Amanda and I when we were coming upstairs and sort of saying it's amazing in a way when you take the breadth of the subject and the importance of it when it affects everyone. No one's actually seemingly put pen to paper on this before. Exactly. There have been schemes before to write books or histories of the health services in the Isle of Man but they never came to anything so one has to congratulate Amanda for an incredible piece of research and pulling it all together and when I was asked just to have a look and maybe 
uh, give some advice on how to get it published and so on, um, I was astonished by the strands of nursing. There's so many aspects to our health services. And of course, I was particularly interested in the early history and looking back to the Victorian era before there was any social care, any health service, obviously, and the privations that the Manx public went through, the ordinary people, the begging, the the cholera outbreak in 1832 uh, was a typical case in point. It came here in July that year and the first case was down in Sand Street as it was then and of course it spread around the town very very quickly because they had no idea how cholera was being spread and uh, as Amanda points out that's where the famous Nellie Brennan came in, the Douglas washerwoman who really uh, endangered her own life by caring for all these people, people uh, who were almost, well, they were definitely ostracised. Nobody wanted to go into their houses. Um, and Nellie, uh, who never caught cholera herself, yeah. uh, was just absolutely heroic. And in a way, it was the start of nursing on the Isle of Man. And I think then the authorities realised that the way water was distributed around the town, which was by a man with a water cart who filled up his his cart down by the harbour bridge here and someone wrote to the Sun newspaper and said they'd seen him doing this and just upstream there was another washerwoman who was washing the clothes of a man who died of cholera uh, and all the stuff was coming down I mean they might as well have sprayed the houses with cholera with the way they were doing it and it's then that somebody realised they had to do a decent water supply and of course the Douglas dispensary and the various um, uh, assistances for people in the community started from then and Amanda of course starts with that and comes right up to the present day and when you read it you realise just how lucky we are today to have the services we have. Absolutely and, and I think it is an incredible story and until you start sort of looking through it and reading the book again you don't really think of how far nursing's come. I think you start off by saying we're really talking about in the early days uneducated subservient handmaids back in the late 1800s. <laughs> now we're talking about highly qualified, highly educated, professional men and women. It, it's, it's a gulf between where we are now and where we started out. Yeah, it, it certainly is. Um, and the thing is, the, the great thing about nursing is that some people want to be hands-on. You know, and they want to. They they're not. They don't want to become managers. They're not bothered about the the qualifications or anything like that. They just desperately want to care for for patients, and that's lovely. You know, and and they shouldn't be thought any the less of. But then it also appeals, of course, to those at the other end of the the spectrum. Um, and we, and I think, just this year, it, in fact, you know, they announced the first nurse endoscopist. You know, which is is great, and of course the the girls at Snaefell Surgery, who are actually practice partners, um, and and that could be the future. You know, for for many practices on the island, you don't know, but that is amazing that they've they've done that. That's it's groundbreaking, and it's working really well. You know, they are very dedicated, and I think a lot of good will come from that. You also talk about the uniqueness of of island nursing. Is it unique here, or is it very different here compared to? We can't see the mainland, but certainly across in sort of Britain or in Wales or in Scotland, as the case may be. The the actual nursing isn't unique, no. Um, and and I think when I did the research, you know, I've realised just how similar training was over here compared to my training in in Wigan. Um, but the the problems that of living on an island are, are unique. And, you know, because in the UK, you wouldn't have to arrange for patients to be escorted off, off island. You know, they would just get in an ambulance and go to the, the nearest city. Um, and 
also you don't have the backup that you have in the UK. You know, if there was a problem in a hospital, they can close down and say beds are full. Um, you know, if there's any emergencies, send them to the next hospital. We don't have that option. You know, we have to deal with it on island and that's it. Flipping through the book, it's it's obviously the wonderful text. Fantastic pictures as well I've been flipping through. I haven't had a chance to read all of it yet, but some wonderful pictures. Uh, I'm sure must have caught your eye on a few of those, Charles, as well. Mm. And, and I think things, I mean, one I'd almost forgotten about until I was flipping through the book before we were talking today was that people obviously know where Nobles is now. A lot of people obviously know the old Nobles down by Westland Road, but of course it started out, I think, as far as I were the first Nobles, was the one at the top of Crowns Hill. Well, it was named after one of the great benefactors, Henry Bloom Noble and his wife Rebecca, because there was no proper uh, public, well, even any sort of hospital I think you could go to for beds. I don't think the dispensary in Douglas had beds in it, or might have had one or two. The, there was Fort Street before that. Fort mm-hmm. Street, that's Fort the one Street, I mean. Yes. Yeah, Fort yeah. Street Hospital. That, yeah. that was the first one with, uh, well... The dispensary had a couple of beds, but it mm. wasn't classed as a hospital, but the mm. first actual hospital was Fort Street. Yes. And then, as you say, how the uh, present museum building was built um, with this bequest, and when that became too small, um, it moved to Westmoreland Road, and I remember, of course, in the uh, 90s, they started thinking about moving it to the current site. And there were a number of Douglas MHKs who bitterly uh, opposed the move, but, of course, the alternative was to expand the Nobles Hospital in Westman Road whilst it was still being used as a hospital, which would have been a nightmare. I was actually commissioned to do a video at the time on de- behalf of the department to show how inadequate that Nobles was. And there was a scene we did, I don't know if you remember, but if you were in a bed and you were being wheeled down to the operating theatre, which technically was one of the most sterile places in the hospital, you went down the corridor that ran between the kitchen and the cafeteria. And very often someone would walk out of the kitchen with a huge uh, dish of chips as a patient was going past. And it was completely unsatisfactory. So there was no question that um, you could never have expanded that site. And now, of course, when you look back, and the current site is fantastic. It, It was the right move. And um, it was one of the times when the Isle of Man actually had some vision. It is a wonderful read and very entertaining, not dry in the least. You'll just have to buy a copy. And if you do, you can find out what superstition claimed may happen if three nurses made a bed together. It might not be what you think. The book's available now via Amazon. Or if you know Amanda, she might well have a copy you can buy directly from her. She might even sign it if you ask nicely. Spotlight. Brought to you by the Isle of Man Arts Council. So there can't be many who haven't read the novel Watership Down, the wonderful story of a warren of rabbits forced to leave their warren and seek pastures new, which in the skilled hands of the author Richard Adams, who created a whole rabbit world, language, culture and folklore, became an allegory for the challenges life throws at any of us along the way. Whilst the book wasn't written here on the island, Richard Adams himself did live on the Isle of Man for several years after the success of Watership Down, and now one of his daughters, Juliet, has returned to live on the island. You might have heard her featured on Mark Tiley's wonderful My Tunes, featured here only a week or so back, also available, of course, as a podcast. If you missed it, check it out. Well, while she was around Manx Radio, I caught up with her to hear about how 
the book Watership Down came to be, the ongoing legacy of her father's work, although he passed away some time ago, and it extends, of course, well beyond Watership Down, and the 50th anniversary edition of the book, plus exciting new plans for the new year. I'm Juliet Johnson. I'm the older daughter of the author Richard Adams. It was my sister and I who bullied and cajoled and threatened Dad to write it down. And um, he took some persuading. We had to have more than one run at it. In the end, we clubbed our pocket money together in Ulverston, where we were on holiday. And uh, we went and bought a cheap pad of paper, because we didn't get an awful lot of pocket money, in Ulverston Market and put it under his nose and said, there, Dad, now we've got you the paper. You've got to write down this story. And what's the original story? Do you remember much about the original story or how closely it correlates to what we now have in the book? It was a vestigial version. It was um, the, There were rabbits called Hazel and Fiverr. Um, they did have to go to a bigger, more important warren to get in. I can't remember if it was for does, female rabbits or not, but... I remember that in order to gain entrance, they dressed up as um, exotic strangers because the rabbit law was that you had to to give admission and hospitality to strangers. And that's all I can honestly remember. But you can see from that snippet that it was a much simpler, much more childlike story. And I think that the whole thing developed in the writing down. Because I I remember actually being... uh given a copy by my parents when it was out and it was uh, the the book to read um, and I think your dad was living on the Isle of Man at the time and I don't know the exact relationship I knew my dad knew your dad possibly <laughs> through the business that, that uh, dad run James Keynes uh, and he presented me with a signed copy oh yes well dad yeah. loved signing copies I mean that was absolutely his favorite thing was a book signing because he loved to meet his audience and uh, he, he always said, you're only as good as your fans. And he made a huge point of answering or trying to answer every single letter that people wrote, um, which sometimes was, you know, quite a burden. It would take all morning sometimes. I was going to imagine that could be a part-time or full-time job in itself at, at its peak, you'd imagine. Very busy indeed. Now then, what about the original story because again when I remember reading it and going through with it I actually found it quite sort of frightening in places was that something again that you remember from the original vestigial version of it or something or that was more written in when it became the full book I think that there is danger and there is threat in the book but I would not want anyone to run away with the idea I don't like the word horror used Mm. in connection with the book it's it's not a horror book at all it's not it's a that no, not no rabbit dies of our band of our troop. Um, Bigwig, jolly nearly does. I don't want to spoil it, but I mean, obviously, the poor rabbits get killed from the Warren they've fled from. But it it's not a horror book at all. There is there is danger and there is threat. It's like life. You know, you've got to think about what you're going to do and you've got to address fear and things like that but I, I think overall it's it's a hopeful story. Do you think it had a bigger message in it or not because I was sort of reading a little bit beforehand and I don't think it struck me as a child particularly but I think some people have been keen to impose perhaps more of a message on it if there was a bigger message a bigger picture about the whole thing of tyranny and freedom and such like and from what I understand your sort of dad always said well no it was a, a story. Yeah, well, 
who knows what goes into the artistic imagination. I always think that it's like a compost heap. You chuck in the cauliflower stalks and the old tea leaves and, you know, the grass clippings, and then out of it comes this rich loam from which new things grow. Um, I think Dad didn't care to address what was in the compost heap. He didn't want to. No, you couldn't blame him. He'd been all through the war. He was whipped out of Oxford after one year and put into uniform uh, and uh, sent off to make parachute jumps. It was pretty frightening. And he'd seen some fairly dreadful things. He was uh, one of those who liberated uh, Changi Jail in Singapore, oh. where the Japanese imprisoned amongst others, many poor Australians, and as he said, some of them were going to die. Uh, he didn't ever talk about it, and that was part of the compost heap. It's not surprising that there's some dark stuff in there. I think he wanted to explain the world to children whom he loved more than anything else uh, without actually frightening them, but without lying. He was very keen never to lie to us. And what he was trying to do was to, to make it... Uh, help us understand what sort of things we might come up against in life, but not not in a preachy way and not in a boring way, and tell us the truth without completely shocking us to the core. And was he a man of faith himself? I think, like many Christians, he wavered. He, mm. You know, he had intense periods of belief, and when it was a great comfort to him and times when God seemed dead or non-existent. Uh, I, I think even clergy feel like that sometimes. 50 Years got a splendid new edition book uh, in my hands looking at this now. What's happening? So there has been some special events. We were just talking before, before we started recording this, uh, a rather nice event down in Islington with a plaque unveiling. Yes, well, this I try and uh, I, I have to run... The books and the copyrights now and it's not always easy and sometimes my sister and I try and have a bit of fun and light relief from contract reading and all the rest of it. Um, I had thought before the pandemic hit that it would be very nice to get a plaque up on our old childhood home where the book was actually written which is a relatively small and in those days quite humble terraced house in Islington and we started up the process and then of course long comes Covid and everything just goes dead. We had a very helpful counsellor in the ward, Jenny Kay, who had no idea that the book was written in her ward. And when she found out what we were trying to do, um, she seized the cudgels on our behalf and managed to get it through. And on Armistice Day, which was a curious choice, but it was the day that the people who lived in the house wanted, we finally unveiled the green plaque, which is nice and simple, very pretty, and it just says, in this house, Richard Adams wrote Watership Down, or words to that effect. And we had wonderful turnout for it. We had school children from the Newington Green Primary School who did a little play afterwards. We had uh, the local MP, who happens to be Jeremy Corbyn, and we had Emily Thornbury, and we had the mayor unveil the plaque, which was great. Hmm. And a um, lot of people turned out, a lot of neighbours came, and people I wasn't expecting at all. And it, it was just a beautiful day. The weather held up, and we had a marvellous time.
And does it speak to the new generation of children the same way that it did when it was written, do you think? Well, I was asked to read them a little bit of the book, so I chose the bit when Bigwig and Hazel come upon Kihar, the injured seagull, which is um, quite fun to read because you can do Kihar's seagull voice and um, <laughs> he's quite angry and aggressive. And I looked up to see how they were taking it once or twice and they were all absolutely hooked. And I thought, yep, still got the old magic, you know. <laughs> Well, I think a true story never dies, doesn't it? I think that's one of the main things. It's, it's an epic story. Because I, I was pondering again what you think its endearing popularity is. Is it the fact that it's rabbits? Uh, and I know, uh, I think when it, you know when he first came to try and get it published, a few people it was turned down several times, and then the publishers who did take it on said, "I'm just I've just taken on a book about rabbits, and one, one of them is sort of one of them can sort of see into the future, whatever." Do you think I'm a bit bonkers? And I think the answer was, "Yeah, you probably are." But <laughs> well, it yeah, I mean the poor old publishers. It is it is a business. It's you know everyone thinks it's a sort of arty farty thing, but it's actually a business. And what they all try and do is replicate the last big hit. At the moment, you'll see in all the shops, they're all busy trying to sell Madeline Miller wannabes with, you know, Greek tales, which is great because I love that stuff. But it, it, she's done that now. Mary Reynolds did it before, of course, years ago. Um, nobody was looking for a, a weird book about talking rabbits because they'd never... Re well, you know, there had been, there'd been Beatrix Potter, but it wasn't like that. Is there sort of more to come, or is it more a case of curating what's there? Well, watch this space. We've got a graphic novel coming out next year. And uh -huh. it's, in fact, funny enough, I was uh, WhatsApping back and forth with our illustrator this morning because he's come onto the bit where the doctor rescues Hazel and he wants to know what clothes the doctor should wear and things. So I was finding pictures for him of, of what doctors wore in the 1920s because the doctor is, in fact, my father's own father, <laughs> my grandfather, who I never met. Um, and I think it's going to be lovely. The The illustrator, Joe, he, Joe Sutfin, he's from Ohio, but he flew out and walked the whole of the terrain of Watership Down from beginning to end and took endless photographs. He fell in the river at one point because he was so enthusiastic about getting the exact angle under the bridge where the punt washes up. And uh, I, I think his pictures are absolutely beautiful. I, I'd be very interested to see if people agree. That's terrific. And so do we have an ETA for that or not? Or May. Or... May. The 50th anniversary edition of Watership Down, published by Puffin, with a new foreword by author Madeline Miller, is available now at all good bookshops. Look out for that graphic novel in 2023. Now Christmas is coming up rapidly on the rails, and so is this. Mananan's Winterfest returns to the Gaiety Theatre in a unique concert celebrating Manx Christmas traditions through a collaboration of the island's finest exponents of classical, folk, brass, choral music, local humour, drama, everything, all in the mix. Think of a local performer, chances are they will be there. Gareth Moore, the cast of Once, the Deemsters, or at least their close relatives, Dot Tilbury, Jeff Corkish, Dave Colgallon, possibly even me, I don't know. Lots of wonderful singing as well, like this. Manx Voices with Lullaby of the Virgin Mary, recorded at Winterfest, 
a few years back. There are just too many wonderful artists to mention. You need to get yourself down there to hear and see them all. It kicks off 7.30, Gaiety Theatre, this Friday the 9th. Something for everyone. Tickets available online at villagaiety.com. Don't miss it. That's about it for this week. Don't forget, if you want to hear anything again, go to banksradio.com, download the Spotlight podcast, listen where you want. Why not try it whilst writing your Christmas cards, or at least while sending your Facebook message to say you're not bothering this year and giving the money to charity instead? It's that time of year. We'll be back next week when we'll be catching up with Manx bard Michael Manning with another poem. Until then, mind how you go, stay creative. Cheerio. <laughs>